0: Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Anne Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and a board-certified lactation consultant. This podcast is produced by the Institute for the Advancement of Breastfeeding and Lactation Education and is co-sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I have a special guest today, uh, Dr. Eliza hayes Bak- uh, Bakken, who informally goes by her middle name, Hayes. And uh, Dr. Hayes is a general pediatrician and board-certified lactation consultant. Uh, she is an expert workgroup member for the American Academy of Pediatrics Value in Inpatient Medical QI Collaborative called Project Light, I love the name of that, which is working to improve evidence-based care for newborns with jaundice through the implementation of the new American Academy of Pediatric Hyperbilirubinemia clinical practice guidelines. And she cares for breastfeeding dyads in the clinic and on the inpatient postpartum unit at um, Ohio OHSU, which is Ohio Oregon. <laughs> oh, Oregon, I was thinking of. Oh, okay, Oregon. Okay, Oregon <laughs> Health
1: uh, Health and Sciences University. And <laughs>
0: Sorry. It's yeah, all good. It's
1: a it's a common it's a common one.
0: <laughs> oh, UW University of Wisconsin, University of Washington. We're who's the real UW. Um, And so I think this is so interesting that this um, collaborative really tries to implement, uh, you know, like all these organizations can make guidelines, but then how do you implement? And I love this idea for so many other things, especially in best feeding medicine. So, um, so yeah, let's talk about the guideline. Thanks for joining me. Um, So uh, this protocol covers the management of hyperbilirubinemia and, like, what's the age cutoff? Can we use this protocol for preemies? So the nice um, thing is that we can use it down
1: to thirty-five weeks. Um, but um, before thirty-five weeks, uh, there, there, there isn't a ton of great evidence out there. Um, there are some guidelines that um, neonatal intensive care units use, um, but this guideline is focused on the care of so preterm infants, but just to start at 35 weeks and above. So our kind of late preterm infants um, and, and term infants that we're caring for, usually outside of ICU settings, although sometimes sometimes there
0: as well. Got it. So you know I'm I'm old, I was trained in the 1980s. And we used to just eyeball infants, um, and then if they looked kind of yellow, we would do a test. And we did a lot of Billy lights uh, back in the late '80s, early '90s, um, mid '90s, and then in 2004. Uh, well, actually, I mean, there. I guess there were swings in the 1990s of like, oh, you know, don't worry about it. And you know, we heard this term, the phobia, which is like fear of Billy and don't worry about it; it's not pathologic. And we don't see that much kernicterus anyway. Um, and then the 2004 guidelines came out and they said to screen every baby. Um, and, 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 uh, and I think that that's probably been pretty well in, um, implemented. And so what, uh, has that been a good thing? And does this policy continue to uh, recommend routine screening?
1: Yes. So, you know, I think that um, this, is, this is a really interesting area and, and it's really exciting to kind of dig into the data and really understand the tension that we're facing um, in caring for babies with hyperbilirubinemia, so high bilirubin levels. so, you know, some of that shift that you're discussing is really because a lot of the hyperbilirubinemia that led to kernicterus, or um, basically the chronic bilirubin encephalopathy where the bilirubin crosses that blood brain barrier um, and leads to really severe outcomes. Um, so these are the babies that develop um basically findings that look like cerebral palsy, they can have um, intellectual disability, they can have hearing loss, um, so these are really terrible outcomes, and you know, in the end, when we look at kernicteris, um, we see that kernicterus is preventable, and so we really want to make it a never event as much as possible. So that's the one side, and I think it's really important to, to know how terrible kernicterus is and to do everything we can um, to be finding the babies at highest risk, to be treating them appropriately to avoid those outcomes. Um, on the other side, uh, the tension that we're dealing with is that really the kernicterus that was seen and was so scary when bilirubin lights were developed, um, when double volume exchange transfusions uh, to avoid kernicterus started to happen, um, was really in the 50s and 60s. And a lot of that was related to the RH incompatibility, the RH disease that caused really brisk hemolysis. And so um, now we're able to give um, gestating parents program and prevent that for the most part, um, and so that's really exciting, and it really changed kind of the landscape of hyperbilirubinemia. Um, so that's that tension you feel in the guidelines, and I think um, we've really gone on to say, okay, if we're not dealing with Rh disease, then then when we look at babies who don't have Rh disease but still have high bilirubin levels what are the different subpopulations in, in that group of infants? And how do we start to really understand who's most at risk and the most evidence-based strategies to prevent pernicterus in those babies?
0: I see. So um, getting back to uh, what you said about prevention during pregnancy, there was there is sort of a section on that. Can you talk about that? For sure. So,
1: you know, this, that the blood group incompatibility and RH incompatibility are definitely important things that we should be looking for. Um, So, you know, basically that section is talking about the importance that, you know, when somebody is pregnant, we know their blood type, um, we're screening for potential antibody positivity in them um, so that we can be proactive in, in the care of that baby. Um, And so whether that's a mother that has, you know, a a random antibody, like anti-E, anti, anti, you know, these other blood, minor blood groups, um, we can then screen the baby for that, whether that antibody passed to the baby um, and whether it's causing hemolysis in the baby after they're born. Um, Certainly for mothers who are RH negative, you know, we need to be using Rogram for those kind of standard protocols and then ensuring that they get the post-birth dose if that baby is RH positive um, to prevent complications in future pregnancies. Um, And then even with the piece around some mothers who have O blood type, um, there is this possibility of what we call ABO incompatibility leading to hemolytic disease of the newborn. So that's where the mothers developed antibodies against the baby's A or B blood groups that pass um, and can cause hemolysis in, in that baby as well. So it's really, you know, we start to see this shift to focus a little bit more on in that piece of the um, prenatal workup, looking and being proactive for babies who would be at higher risk for hemolysis.
0: And I saw there was a pretty nice algorithm in the protocol on what to do, like if the mom is positive or negative or antibodies, so that was really great. Um, and then um, so I want to talk about this other this other uh, issue regarding like those who are at higher risk for a Um, But first, I just want to talk about breastfeeding, um, because this is the breastfeeding medicine podcast. <laughs> and um, and, you know, we have talked so much about Breastfeeding jaundice versus uh, lack of breastfeeding jaundice, or breast milk jaundice. Breastfeeding lack of breastfeeding jaundice and breast milk jaundice. Do you want to talk about that?
1: Yes, absolutely. I think that that was like my um, as a lactation consultant and um, you know somebody who practiced breastfeeding medicine. I was so excited that we got away from kind of indicting breast milk and breastfeeding a bit because. You know, I think that it made it seem and when you say to a family, like your baby has breastfeeding jaundice or breast milk jaundice, then they immediately jump to like, I'm doing something to hurt my baby. And that's the last thing that any parent wants to do. Um, and so I'm so thankful that the guidelines have really moved away from those terms. Um, and so in talking about what, what I learned when I was in training as breastfeeding jaundice, which as you said as really lack of breastfeeding jaundice, um, they are now calling this entity sub optimal intake jaundice and i think that's important for two reasons it really calls to us who you know help dyads breastfeed to really focus on the importance of of getting good feedings going in those first few days and weeks um but also i think it also it also uh, calls to the fact that any baby can have suboptimal intake. Um, and so that we, we have to also be aware of this in babies who maybe aren't going to the breast, but also aren't formula feeding well or aren't taking donor milk well if they're you know unable to go to the breast. So the bottom line is we need to make sure that infants are getting what they need in those first few days, um, that we're getting things off to a good start, um, and that they're not having excessive weight loss and signs of dehydration. And they really focus on that. So the focus is you know, really, is this baby um, showing us clinically that they are not getting enough to eat by not having output, by looking dehydrated on exam, uh, rather than indicting the breastfeeding.
0: Yeah, although there is a comment about how breastfed children, infants, are likely to have a higher bilirubin at, um, at uh, like at the in the first month, they talk about uh, 34% of breastfed infants at 28 days of age, will have a transcutaneous billy of at least five and 9% are over 10 and 1% over 12.9. So I think uh, they're always, I think we, I think we see it clinically too, right? That babies who are breastfed are probably going to linger a little bit longer with their physiologic jaundice than those who are form fed.
1: And I think what you said there is what's so important is that that's what we're talking about is physiologic jaundice. And I think that we really need to start, you know, just as um, there was that whole, you brought up vaginophobia. It's one of my favorite things. If you haven't had the joy of reading the article entitled Vaginophobia, which is a play between a med student um, or it was a resident and two attendings where he's like, why are we scared of the number 20? These babies seem okay to me. It's hilarious. Um, but if, and if you haven't had the joy of reading that, I highly recommend it. But you know, it's really that we get focused on these numbers and believing that the a specific number is necessarily bad. And and really, I think maybe we're kind of moving to trentophobia fear thir- of the '30s. But um, in general, I think the point is that babies who are well underneath those numbers that we know lead to an increased risk of herniotors that it doesn't mean that each successful step up is somehow bad or being at 10 or 15 or, you know, is for a couple of weeks is necessarily bad. Um, There are different theories around it may actually even have some neuroprotective effects and other things. It's physiologic. So we need to be focused on the situations where the hyperbilirubinemia is pathologic, and that's both the number the child reaches and probably some other factors as well, some of which we know, which are under that neurotoxicity risk factor categories, um, and some may still be out there to be determined, because this when we look at the infants who get kernicterus, it's a really heterogeneous group from the group of infants that we're treating and monitoring for hyperbilirubinemia. Um,
0: so so maybe- I think... Maybe this like slightly elevated belly that we see in breastfed babies versus in non-breastfed babies, maybe we need to reframe it just like, we used to say delayed cord clamping, now we say normal cord clamping and it's early cord clamping. So now we need to say, lack of physiologic jaundice at two weeks
1: (laughs) versus perhaps i mean i think the bottom line is that you know when we look at there's great guidelines guidance in there about how we can work up those infants to make sure that we're not missing something else um but in general there's there's there there's a normalization of the fact that those bilirubin levels remain elevated for a longer period of time. And we need to, again, look for that needle in a haystack infant that may have something else going on that we need to detect to get them the right treatment. Um, But usually those aren't the infants that we're worried are going to go on to develop cornectoris.
0: Got it. Okay. So um, let's talk about that higher risk group, um, the group that's more at risk for uh, jaundice, uh, I mean for cornectoris. And then also um, maybe within that you can talk about hemolysis because there's an emphasis on hemolysis. And maybe those with hemolysis have a higher risk of chronic risk as well.
1: Yes. So I mean, I think that um yes, the the there isn't, there aren't really big changes when we look at the neurotoxicity risk factors. Um The main change that happened was there were some spelled out different indicators, clinical indicators of um, infants that are sick, that are clinically unstable. Um, And those are kind of grouped now into this category of clinical instability um, in the previous 24 hours. What all of these risk factors are getting to is that there seems to be situations where that blood brain barrier is more porous, where it's more likely to allow the bilirubin to get through. Um, And so where we can see infants who end up at the same very, very high bilirubin levels in the thirties, some will go on to develop the clinical um, diagnosis of chronic bilirubin encephalopathy or kernicterus, and some won't. And what is that, what is that puzzle there? And so that's what those risk factors are getting to for the most part. So they're getting to this more porous blood brain barrier. The next category is that category of hemolysis. And so if there's hemolysis going on, you know, it's a little bit heterogeneous from the other categories. So those other, a lot of the other things on that category are getting to, is there a reason why the bilirubin in this baby may be more likely to cross the blood-brain barrier? In the hemolysis category, we're really getting to the fact that hemolysis can be unpredictable. And so these babies can kind of have an increase in hemolysis, a decrease in, in hemolysis, and they don't follow that more standard pattern that, is that as intake increases and as output increases, that they're able to get rid of the bilirubin. And, and so for a baby with hemolysis, if the production of bilirubin increases, even if we increase their output of that bilirubin, we may not be in balance. And so the goal is to make sure they're staying much farther away um, from those, those um, exchange transfusion or, or levels at which we know could potentially cause kernicterus in the 30s. Um, because of that unpredictability in kind of the rate of turnover of their red cells and their the rate that they're producing bilirubin.
0: Interesting. Yeah, that's a concept that I don't think we really discussed in the past. Um, so, uh, so what so what tool uh, do you recommend that we use for phototherapy guidelines?
1: Yeah, I think the cool thing is that there are lots of different tools out there. I think everybody has a favorite. Um, uh, there are definitely different um, options. The ones that I think a lot of people use, and I don't want to leave anyone out—you know—who's made their own—but the ones I hear most use are um, PD Tools and Billy Tool, and they have now both gone on to update um, their guidance. So if you were using them before, you may already have kind of. Um, moved over, Um, what happened is that basically the mathematics behind the curves, the new curves that were developed, um, is basically plugged into those tools as a calculator so that you can put in the gestational weeks for the infant that you're seeing. You can put in how old they are and whether they have any of those neurotoxicity risk factors. And the tool will tell you, okay, these are your next steps. Um, it'll even go to the point of if if the measurement that you got was a transcutaneous bilirubin, that it would recommend getting a serum bilirubin. Um, it also will tell you if they're in this new area, which is two milligrams per deciliter below um, the exchange transfusion threshold, if where escalation of care, kind of more steps in that baby's care are recommended. Um, And so it kind of goes through all of that for you um, in both tools. It just is presented a little bit differently. And so I encourage people to check those out. Um, I know a lot of um, health systems across the United States also use Epic as their electronic medical record. Um, Epic is, does now have these new calculators available to be used by institutions. So um, if your institution is using calculators in Epic already or not, you know, that's something to talk to your IT teams about whether that might be possible for you.
0: Sounds good. Yeah. So. Um, There also is a section talking about uh, the concern regarding jaundice in the first 24 hours and that one should be thinking differently if there's visible jaundice at that time.
1: Yes, and I think that's another clue pointing to when we sit down and talk with the experts that created these guidelines and the discussions that they had over a really long period of time. We've all been waiting for these guidelines. You know, they're supposed to be created every 10 years and so we're those first, those guidelines were from 2004. So, you know, we've been waiting for these a long time. So there's been a lot of clinical discussion happening and a lot of exciting research that's come out in that period of time. That's really pointing to the fact that um, hemolysis is, is is a clinical entity that is much more likely to lead to higher bilirubin levels, um, and to the development of Um, Where do we see that? We see that when we look at, for example, the studies that have looked at um, the the Northern California Kaiser system was used as kind of a closed system to kind of have good follow-up for infants. Um, and they really found that of the four infants who had Billy over 30 who they develop who, who had um, clinically, developed findings that were consistent with chronic bilirubin encephalopathy. Um, Three of them had decreased G6PD activity, and one of them didn't have their G6PD activity. Um, measured. There were other infants in that sample who had those high bilirubin levels and did not develop kernicterus. And so it's clear that, you know, trying to find that needle in a haystack of G6PD deficiency infants, making sure we're looking for ABO incompatibility um, as well is, is, an, is an important step um, because of what we were talking about, that unpredictability and that rate of rise of the bilirubin levels. Um, And so infants who already have elevated bilirubins in the first 24 hours are much more likely to be your needle in a haystack. And so um, that is where it's really helpful. There's a couple of clues in the guidelines that will kind of clue us into having a higher index of suspicion. And one is that really early jaundice. And then the next is the rate of rise. So if you're able to get two measurements that it can really clue you in to a baby whose bilirubin is, is rising much more quickly than we would expect. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, I was going to say that, um, I always like to look at the rate of rise that, you know, just a spot billy doesn't tell you nearly as much unless it's really high in the first 24 hours. And so, um, what, like what is an aggressive rate of rise or concerning rate of rise?
1: Yes. And so basically the guidelines say that we, and this is nice. I think we've all like read different things, but it's in the guidelines now, which is great. Um, they basically define a rapid rate of increase as greater than 0.3 milligrams per deciliter per hour in the first 24 hours or 0.2 milligrams per deciliter, uh, per, per hour. Thereafter, um, and so you can get your two measurements and use either a transcutaneous or serum measurements to to look at that rate of rise and get some inclination about whether this is a baby that you should have a higher index of suspicion uh, for in about hemolysis for, um, and so you know that that's. That's helpful. Um, I think as 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 pointing us into to what we should be looking
0: for for sure. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, trying to assess um, like when to follow up, whoever um, it's that. I think the guide the guidance is really helpful in looking at that rate of rise, and then also it seems like there's a lot of information about transcutaneous versus serum billies. And I I get the impression that the protocol is pretty supportive of those transcutaneous billies.
1: I know. I think it makes me look and get a little nervous. Like, I think it's a good time to be in the transcutaneous billy (laughs) (laughs) meter market. But um, And so, you know, I don't want to add to just the commercialization of all these things. But, you know, the the evidence is strong um, when we look. Um, to studies that as clinicians, we are really pretty darn good at knowing if there's any jaundice present, but we are pretty darn bad when we estimate what number that jaundice is at. And so the bilirubin meters um, give us kind of a confidence interval, so plus or minus three points. Um, And that is really helpful and better than we as human beings and clinicians perform um, in studies when we're comparing ourselves. Um, And so it's kind of plus or minus six. I've even seen, you know, kind of error ranges in the 15, 16 level for some clinicians. So, you know, I think it's really important to make sure that we, when we do those measurements, we're doing it um, in in a baby who peers jaundice, we're like, this baby is jaundiced, that we are not anchoring to, it's just in the face, or we only see to the top of the chest that we are getting that measurement. The other piece around that is the fact that in the United States, um, the highest rates of G6PD deficiency are going to be seen in black infants. So as high as 10 to 14%. And so, you know, doesn't mean that every infant with G6 PD deficiency is going to have hyperbilirubinemia. But the fact is that I think um, there's there's evidence to suggest that we may not be as good at detecting visually jaundice in more in infants with more melanin in their skin. And so we need to be sensitive to this and make sure that we're not introducing more bias and inequity in in the ways that we're treating um, infants.
0: Right. Yeah, I've oftentimes wondered why the G6PD is not part of newborn screening. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I, I mean, it makes me so nervous. <laughs> so as a clinician out there, um, it's something that I check not super infrequently. Um, and, you know, I think when we look at that, those infants that did go on to develop kernicterus, um, you know, I won't be surprised that if there's another... Um, Another guideline coming as these continue to be updated and we continue to learn more that we start to zero in more and more on the importance of G6PD deficiency, especially because to some extent we know that ABO incompatibility, that hemolytic disease of the newborn, has some predictability where hemolysis is more brisk and it kind of decreases, But um, G6PD deficiency is kind of the acute hemolytic events related to it can be um, really unpredictable. And it has been shown to relate it to, for example, a mother or a, a lactating parent, you know, Eating foods that, like fava beans, that might cause an acute hemolytic event, Um, but also sometimes there can be acute hemolysis without a really clear precipitating cause. And so, um, as a clinician, that uncertainty makes me super nervous.
0: Yeah, it does make me nervous. And I wonder if this is, you know, I just a health inequity thing. You know, like should we be screening parents when? you know, the the parents when an individual is pregnant uh, for the risk, um, if they're carrying any genetic, you know, marker for it, or if they have it. Um,
1: and especially because I think, I think that that's really important. I mean, we know this is X-linked. And so, but the important thing to know is I've actually heard heard folks say, I'm in an academic setting. So, you know, residents saying, oh, but why are we looking for G6PD in this female infant? And it's because, Um, actually with lionization, so kind of the X inactivation being um, inconsistent across those X chromosomes, you know, we can see um, decreased G6PD activity in female infants. And so, you know, we need to be really cautious about that and, and know, you know, those, those, just even knowing the um, X chromosomes that are being passed, even from one parent is potentially an important clue.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It seems like it's a, yeah, I don't think it's a health inequity thing. And also, I think it's also, uh, a sign that we have that breastfeeding has kind of, um, you, you know, we're, we're in this age of increased breast, increased breastfeeding rates, but then policies have not kept up. Like the whole policy of like, Oh, back to birth weight of two weeks. Well, that was based on formula feeding, right? And then, um, and so then, if you think knowing that if an individual, if a baby's who may have D six PD deficiency is being breastfed, they have a much higher risk if they're breastfed than if they're not breastfed. I would think because of the risk of of the different um, foods and medications that they may be exposed to during breastfeeding. But because those weren't issues before. And largely formula fed babies and knowing that the African American population best fed, you know, best feeds, has best fed less and still, we still see that health inequity, um, you know, I, I I feel like we need to pay more attention to this. Yes.
1: Yeah, I, I 100% agree. And I mean, I think even the even when you look at the new curve so the, one of the main things in the new guidelines is these new curves we all carried well I carried around I think I was pre pre-billy tool but carried around like I still have my little like paper 2004 guideline nomograms and right. when we look what we really see is that um that, Those guidelines really were focused on this much more smoother idea of of bilirubin being a problem. And the new guidelines, there's not a lot of change in bilirubins that cause concern in the first kind of 24, even to 48 hours. But beyond that, those those cutoffs where we would do phototherapy for an older infant are much higher, which is also when we see sub suboptimal intake jaundice at that like two three four day kind of period of time. And so I think, you know, when the evidence was clear, um, that those a lot of that comes from studies that looked at the number needed to treat. So they basically looked at infants, you know, by by um, their uh, gestational age, and they said how many infants do we need to treat? to treat at different hours of life in order to prevent one from going over exchange transfusions. And the numbers were hugely different. We're talking about like preterm infants that were in the first 24 hours, it's like one to fif- or 10 to 15 infants need to be treated to, mm prevent one from needing an exchange transfusion. But when we look at term infants at three days and beyond, it was like 3,000, right? So, you know, it it really is, again, these clues pointing back to, um, we need to to address suboptimal intake. And I'm not encouraging anybody to, you know, to ignore it, to ignore a baby who's three or four days old and really jaundiced um, with suboptimal intake. We definitely need to treat that. but the guidance really showing that that really there is this heterogeneity, and those infants that are earlier, the infants with hemolysis, sh- we should really be looking for those infants and making sure that we're being really aggressive in how we manage them.
0: Interesting. That's great. Yeah. Um, so um, I want to talk about. Let's say the bill. Let's say that Billy is high, and I just want to give you a hypothetical case. So let's say that um, where you're seeing a baby who has, who's breastfed, uh, breastfeeding well, gaining just fine, and the bilirubin is still fairly high. Let's say it was 16 on day five, uh, 16.3 on day six, 16.5 on day seven, so it's just going up a teeny bit, and then on day eight, it's 16, so you think, ah, oh, coming down, okay, we're good. And uh, and so this is a real case, uh, so that I saw in the breastfeeding medicine clinic and the baby continues to overall feed fine, um, gaining an ounce a day, 30 grams a day. And now at 20 days, the baby looked kind of jaundiced And so I did a belly and it's 17. And um, so, and this baby overall continues to feed well. Um, so what would be the workup at that point?
1: Absolutely. I, I feel like I'm dealing with this so much. This is like my world. Yeah. <laughs> I have lots of cases like this. And I think we're all like, how do we deal with this? I mean, I think first off to say that the initial management in those first couple of days looks appropriate to me, right? We have a, a slow rate of rise in a baby who's, you know, initiating good feedings, having some good weight gain. Um, and then to see that the the bilirubin is decreasing is reassuring. Um, but now we're we're out at day twenty and we're kind of in a different zone. And so the what we're looking for is a little um heterogeneous at this point. Um we want to I think the first check is, you know, depending on this infant's gestational age, um, the phototherapy thresholds are probably going to be pretty darn high, um, you know, for an infant this old. But the new nomogram guidelines do go out to two weeks. And you can kind of extrapolate beyond that probably. We're probably at three weeks of life not talking about a baby who's going to need phototherapy. But let's say this happened in that first two-week period. The first question is, is this baby getting close to a phototherapy threshold. And the new guidelines say, um, if they're getting close, then two points or so, you can consider outpatient phototherapy. So you could consider sending them home with a billy blanket to kind of bring that level down. But that you should also be thinking about in that infant, whether there's something else causing it. And, And that's where we are with this three week old now, we need to say, you know, what we're looking for now is not necessarily preventing kernicterus as much as is there something else that's leading to hyperbilirubinemia that we need to detect um, and get to the bottom of to make sure that this infant leads a healthy life. Um, what are the things on that list? They're numerous and the guidelines actually really go through a really nice differential diagnosis. Um, but the first step is to make sure that there isn't um, a direct component to that to that bilirubin. So if that's basically when we send the baby to the lab and we get a total bilirubin which is what you're reporting that we can ask them to fractionate that and tell us what part of that is that direct bilirubin. And that's really important because if that's elevated it can give us clues and point to the fact that we need to think about how the liver is Um, is handling the bilirubin and whether the liver is functioning appropriately. Um, It can be point to things um, that are going on with the liver. I've taken care of a baby with um, uh, pile acid salt deficiency that, you know, had really severe hyperbilirubinemia, and that was undetected for a while. Um, I think um, Uh, A lot of um, people also think about like biliary atresia and those kinds of things that really do need to be detected and treated so we can prevent these infants from going into liver failure. Again, it's a needle in a haystack, but, you know, it's not a big deal if you're going to get another level to go ahead and fractionate it. Um, And so if if it hasn't been fractionated recently, I think that's a first step. Um, The next thing is to think about the other things in that differential diagnosis. So for example, hypothyroidism is on there. That's really important to detect. Hopefully that's on your newborn screen. I think it's pretty universal, but looking back, like, do you know that that newborn screen is back and it's normal? Unfortunately, we see, you know, if there's uneven saturation and they couldn't run it or, you know, these kind of things that happen to really just Dot that I across that T. Um, Also, um, sometimes um, when a newborn screen is not done as a two part screen, there are a few cases that can be missed so it's not a bad idea, especially if there's any other clues that something else may be going on to to check a thyroid um, level as well and make sure that that looks okay. And then the guidance kind of goes through these other things. So things like Jill Bear pop up, and other things you know that I think are a little bit more. um, So what is my usual workup? Um, I usually would get make sure I've gotten a direct um, Billy Rubin. um, With that, with that. That total going up, I would make sure that I'm moving to a serum level so that I know, because that that increase is still within the rate of error and you're kind of above where transcutaneous bilirubin, you know, above 15, it's less uh, reliable. So I'd make sure that I'm checking serum levels and getting a direct. Um, Sometimes then we'll also think about ongoing hemolysis or G6PD, so getting a CBC and seeing, you know, what does the hemoglobin look like? Is there reticulocyte count? get a G6PD activity as well, especially if there's any suggestive family history. Um, and, uh, but then starting to think about kind of trending it, seeing that baby back in a week or so, trending that bilirubin, what is it doing? And then kind of escalating my interventions and my workup um, if I see that it's not coming down at all or continuing to rise.
0: Right. So that's actually, um, so in terms of breast milk, John, that's what we, you know, say, you know, just the classic breast milk jaundice that leads to a bilirubin and that sort of gradually trends down. From my experience, sometimes it's not really um, undetectable until in terms of visually undetectable until they're like three to four months sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's kind of high for a uh, for breastfeeding jaundice, right? For, um, you know, at, at, at 17 at three weeks, I, I would think it would be a little lower, like maybe 12 to 15.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of us who've done this will say we've seen those cases and when we look, you know, there is a percent of the babies who were in those higher number ranges when they looked at the study, it's this it's small, right? So we're talking about, you know, there a significant standard deviation below that mean and so we need or above that mean. So we need to be thinking about them. And so I think have I seen what we classically call breast milk jaundice lead to bilirubin's in those high teens? I have. Um, mm-hmm. Where we've done additional workup, nothing has come up, um, and um, unfortunately, I think the other thing that we've all seen is where people would recommend then switching to formula, or the family yes. gets anxious yes. and they switch to formula, and that does bring the Billy down. Yes. And so I think that's where it's really important that we're doing, you know, good counseling, that we're being careful with our words, that we're in how we talk about this to say. The bilirubin itself is not a problem. Your baby is safe at this level of bilirubin. I just need to make sure that it's not giving me a little clue that something else may be going on, and so I need to go looking for those other things that might be going on that might change, you know, how we treat your baby. Um, but your breast milk. Um, alone causing an increased bilirubin is not a danger to your baby. I'm looking for other things. Um, and I think being really clear about that, because I mean, I, I had baby that was like right around 20 and the mom just got so stressed. She saw lots of different people. She switched a formula and it like came down in two days to like 12. And it's like, okay yes now we know but that's it's in the end you know we did already know because we'd done all the work up everything was reassuring and you know there was nothing to say that being right around 20 was actually doing any harm to your baby
0: right absolutely yeah um so yeah let's uh, talk about billy lights so um so you know I think that so when I in the 1980s uh i had well i had my two kids in 1990 and 1992 and they were they had a really severe abo incompatibility so they were both john at eight hours of age and we went home with the light box and in los angeles there actually was a team of nurses who had a company which was just a home billy rubin company and they the baby you know the baby sat in the box um and uh they came and monitored every day and checked on breastfeeding and things like that. Um, but it was really, it was overhead lights. It wasn't a simple billy blanket. Um, and uh, and I think back to that, and I think, ah, I'll safe that was. And so <laughs> considering it was overhead and we had to keep the mask on and, you know, it was hard to sleep because you're worried the kid's going to suffocate, you know, with the mask going over their nose. And So yeah, what does that look like now for people, for home for home Yeah,
1: what the different options are. And so, you know, I think the first thing is, again, these thresholds have increased. And so the goal, I mean, ideally we're not providing as much phototherapy. Um, and, you know, we may be able, these babies that were kind of right at the threshold. The other thing we saw is that the old guidelines weren't incredibly clear in making a distinction between babies who were, for example, 35 weeks exactly gestationally and babies who were 37 and six. Some people kind of added a few points, but not everyone did. And so I think there was some significant overtreatment going on there. Um, but the new guidelines point to the fact that we can um, basically, you know. If babies are at these phototherapy thresholds, we definitely need to. Oh my goodness! There goes my dogs. My husband just went outside. He's trying to move the garbage. Gr- uh, so no <laughs> I can I can in
0: here, right? No, no problem. <laughs>
1: um, so the the new thresholds um, basically are are higher, and so hopefully we're providing less. But if an infant is at that new threshold, we really need to be doing the intensive phototherapy that. I think it's interesting that sometimes maybe done at home, but from what I've seen, this is like exclusively done in the hospital. Um, the new guidelines are very specific about um, what irradiance, you know, kind of we should be looking for from our lights to make sure that they're providing that intensive phototherapy. We went back at it as an institution, and it was no different than what we were doing, it's just much more specific. Um, But there is now this guidance about, you know, could we do some home phototherapy for these babies that are kind of on the bubble and the guidance says, yes, if babies are, um overall low risk so um, older you know this is babies that have gone home from the hospital that are not preterm that you know are feeding effectively um that whose bilirubins are kind of in that two points below the phototherapy threshold range um, that we can consider doing home phototherapy for those babies um and that's just with a billy blanket at home that they can sleep on and and be cuddled with etc um and um but but that we need to make sure that we're able to get those billy lights started without delay, that we're able to um, in, to follow up those babies, you know, get us another serum billy Rubin within 24 hours and make sure that things are improving and that they don't need to actually go on to have the intensive phototherapy. So um, there is good guidance in there about that um, and about, you know, when to consider that and who they believe are the right candidates um, for that approach as well. Um, we were talking as a group and I think even in our like collaborative that like You know, sometimes, unfortunately, I think where the uh, expert work group felt the babies were the lowest risk, Um, these were not necessarily the babies who uh, we find have that prolonged. So, what you're talking about, ABO compatibility, they actually would say hemolysis is not a baby that you could do home phototherapy on because you need to be monitoring much more closely. Um, And so, you know, that's kind of, I'm not sure that. The home phototherapy approach is going to be there for oftentimes the kids we feel like we need it for um, and would like to get those families home. So,
0: right. Do, do you so I didn't see anything in the guideline about continuous versus intermittent um, phototherapy. Do you know much about that and whether there was intention to leave it out or, yeah?
1: you know, there is a little bit in there about talking about kind of trying to keep the baby under the lights as much as possible. And so um, I I think the, the, the way I read the guidelines, it really is encouraging kind of continuous phototherapy with the breaks for feeding. I mean, and so I'm not sure if that's what you're talking about an intermittent, but when an infant is not feeding, um, that they should be under the lights, which is really hard for families. You know, I think thinking about as institutions too, how do we make sure infants are admitted that we're doing things that are more family-centric? These, in my current institution, these infants are managed in kind of the postpartum unit families are together. they uh, the, the the parent is, you know, taking the infant in and out of the phototherapy versus in a previous institution, infants are readmitted to the neonatal intensive care unit, families weren't able to stay together. And so, you know, really encouraging and advocating for practices that are more family centric, um, where we can provide this phototherapy, but empower parents to, you know, be part of the team and be there at the bedside providing all of that, you know, reassurance and snuggling and padding and
0: <laughs> you know, whatever else they need. These studies that actually came out uh, showing that uh, just giving like bouts of phototherapy um, intermittently uh, worked just as well as continuous, with the theory that it takes several hours for the bilirubin to sort of like get to the surface of the skin. And then once they're zapped, that just takes a couple minutes uh, for that bilirubin to be converted. And so, so, yeah, so I, I'll send you those studies. I thought they were interesting. Great. they would in the I great.
1: I think the one thing I wonder about that, though, too, is, you know, it'd be interesting to look at, like, what were their outcomes? Because to some extent... You know, I think a lot of the intervention that we were, a lot of us were trying to do different things because we realized that we were really over-treating infants. Mm-hmm. And so we were doing a lot of phototherapy for infants who were probably never going to get near exchange transfusion levels. Mm-hmm. You know, if anybody had had that admission where in the, in the clinical setting, they were above phototherapy and they come in, they're already sliding down. The other thing we know is that when when they looked at the implementation of the 2004 guidelines, there was a ton of sub-threshold phototherapy that was happening. Mm -hmm. People were basically saying, okay, they're within one, they're within two, they're within three, let's start the phototherapy to try to still discharge them on time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think a lot, there's been a lot of research to say, is there a risk of phototherapy? Um, and, and most of it has suggested no, but the research around the increased risk of um, epilepsy, of seizure disorders, is, is kind of concerning. And it's pretty consistently found that there's a small but but present increased risk of seizures after treatment with phototherapy. Um, the, what is the... The pathophysiology there. I think um, there are theories, um, but nothing's you know clearly proven. But I think that it just points to the fact that we think of phototherapy as being kind of innocuous and maybe we shouldn't. And so I'm really advocating, you know, in, in our collaborative, we're advocating to really do away with subthreshold phototherapy, several points away from the, the phototherapy um, cutoffs with the new guidelines, which are higher, especially for infants that are lower risk, um and really move to focus on doing phototherapy doing it intensively for sh- ideally a shorter period of time for the infants who need it and getting them back out of the hospital um the other the guidance also points to the fact that the goal is to get the baby um, have drive their level significantly below the phototherapy threshold at which where they were when the lights were initiated which also points to driving it much lower for infants who are having, you know, high levels of bilirubin in those first couple of days where those threshold levels are much lower versus being, you know, not needing to get it quite so low in the infants who are older,
0: right? Yeah, um, yeah, and so that, that maybe segues into the conversation about rebound, um, and so that was uh, kind of new, that wasn't talked about in 2004, I think, Right. And so there have been, you know, different rebound
1: calculators and different things that have been out there. P- various people have done different things. And I think, you know, it was so interesting, you know, as, as a resident myself, but then even in my residence, they're like, where are you on the rebound structure <laughs> when they come on service with you? Like, what are we doing on this service? Because it was clear that there was a lot of heterogeneity in how we were doing this. Um, and so the goal of the new guidelines is to really focus A rebound level is basically where we keep the infant, um, you know, in the hospital setting, we turn off the lights and we measure the bilirubin around the time we're getting ready to turn off those lights. And then we measure it several hours later to see how fast it's increasing. Now the lights have been turned off. Um, that means keeping the family in the hospital. It means, you know, it, it sounds great, but I, I don't know if your institutions are like mine, but it's like, you know, ask for the blood draw an hour later, they come up and it goes to the lab and sometimes there's processing issues. And so it can be a long process. Yeah. Um, and I think oftentimes you end up in this in-between category, but, um, they um, are really pretty specific about who they think um, needs a rebound level drawn, and it's again those infants that are higher risk. It's the infants that have hemolysis going on, um, the infants who um, needed phototherapy um, at earlier ages, and so um, definitely encourage people to go through those those tables and and guide on the guidelines and kind of look through and and align their clinical practices so that we can decrease um the where we're getting rebound bilirubins in infants who probably really don't need them and can be followed up in the
0: outpatient setting. Great, right. Yeah, this is such a good review. Thank you so much. Um, I was talking to some of the pediatricians at our in our system and and uh, they said, yeah, this this uh these new guidelines are so long and there's so much. And I kind of feel like it validates my intuitive Uh, management of hyperbolic. Yeah,
1: (laughs) for sure. Definitely. I think a lot of us, um, so in the Pacific Northwest, so in Northern California, and then here in Portland, Oregon, we'd actually implemented other guidelines with higher thresholds before. And that was part of the work I had done um, called the Northern California Neonatal Consortium Guidelines that looked a lot of the, the research coming out. And so I was able to get comfortable with it much sooner, but I think there was a lot of kind of angst that we felt like they just didn't feel like they were, um, they were quite right that they were hitting the mark and so I'm excited I think this moves us a ton closer I think we need to be. Um, be clear that the level of evidence for these um, guidelines for these key action statements is still low and so we need to be flexible and realize that this is an evolving field and that things are likely to change again with subsequent um, relooks um uh, but I think there's really clues here in how we kind of hone our clinical instincts and and who we should be worried about and um, and giving us more guidance to kind of create more uniformity in our practice so families don't feel like they're hearing all kinds of different things. And I think that that's a really an important move in the right direction. And so it's been really fun to help hospital systems implement these guidelines. Um, if you're feeling overwhelmed by the guidelines, there are there are great webinars and summaries out there put out by the AAP um, with a lot of some of my favorite people on them. And so I um, highly recommend people lean into that and kind of check those out if they feel like they want a more in-depth look as well.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much for this review. I really appreciate it. And I'm so glad that uh, we're no longer talking about um, starving breastfeeding babies. (laughs) Definitely. Definitely. It's so important. Well, take care. And uh, thanks again. And hopefully we'll be in touch at some point. For sure. Bye. Bye. For questions regarding this podcast, please contact us through our website at lacted.org. We have other educational projects, including the clinical question of the week, our little green book of breastfeeding management for physicians, and our various educational courses and conferences for physicians and other breastfeeding supporters. If you want to see what we look like, check out our Breastfeeding Medicine podcast Facebook page, where you can post any questions or comments about our podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with you in about four weeks.